we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we want to thank you that you speak through your Word. Uh, Lord, you change people's lives as they hear your Word because it is living and active, like a two-edged sword able to pierce down into the division of soul and spirit into our very marrow of who we are. And Lord, we thank you that that's true, but Lord, we need a humble heart to receive your Word, not just to have hard hearts and deaf ears. And so I ask for you to soften hearts. I ask for you to open ears. I ask for you to open eyes to see you, to see what you're doing. Uh, Lord, to give us conviction of sin, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and also joy in the life that you offer. Uh, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. I ask that you would give me clarity and that you, Lord, would make Christ real as your word is spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Greek philosopher Archilochus says this, The fox knows many little things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox knows many little things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. In uh, modern Australia, we think there's many ways to achieve the good life. The good life. What are we looking for? Used to be the quarter acre block, a bit like the movie The Castle. You know, you'd have your own castle, which is your home, your lovely family uh, with you know, husband, wife, 2.5 children. Uh, you would have your superannuation scheme in the castle. It's made up of greyhounds who will eventually win you uh, the great prize at the dog race. And, of course, a family who are knitted together by um, trying to get a good deal off Gumtree. That is um, one of the pictures that we get of the good life in Australia. And our text today has an amazing phrase which leads us to think of this. Uh, verse 10, quoting Psalm 34, says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is that not the Australian dream? To love life and to see good days. And as I mentioned earlier from um, ancient Greek wisdom... The fox, the fox knows many little things. The fox thinks there's many different ways, many little ways that you can add up to get the good life. But the hedgehog knows one big thing. And this morning, we're going to be a hedgehog because there is only one big thing you need to know to get the good life. Not many little things, but one big thing you need to know to get the good life. And I tell you, everybody's looking for it. Everyone is looking for to love life and to see good days. And this morning, we are going to have a look at our text and find out how we ought to do that. So at the beginning of our text, we see that there is an outward search and in our culture, there's an outward search, but an inward reality of the good life. An outward search, but an inward reality of the good life. Everyone's looking for this good life. Everyone desires to love life and to see good days, but few of us actually know how to get it. Uh, one of Australia's most uh, prolific and current uh, sports heroes, Ash Barty, says this, speaking about 
what's missing in her life. She says, that was not always the case, especially when Barty walked away from tennis for the first time in 2014. She was homesick, disillusioned and dissatisfied. She says, during that period of my life while playing cricket, I was searching, searching for stimulation. I was searching for other things, she said. But now I don't need that. Now I have probably understood and realised that I've had an extremely full, fulfilling and incredible journey in my athletic and professional career. And now it's time to close that chapter. Now it's the beginning of a completely new chapter in my life and we see what's possible as opposed to searching for what's missing. Ash Barty, of course, we know is an accomplished professional cricketer and uh, was world number one in the tennis world and retired at the peak of her career. And she said that many athletes are searching for what's missing, but she has accomplished something which few attain to. She is satisfied in her sporting career and now she will search outside of sport for this what's missing. But Ash Barty has picked up on something that all of us have inside of us. That is, if we perform at our absolute peak, maybe we'll find that secret to life, that secret to what is missing, that secret to the good life. But she has picked up that it may not come through her sporting performance, but it's still out there. I want you to notice that she said she stopped searching for what's missing in sport through her personal performance, and that's a wise thing because you get to a point where your personal performance will only decline. But she's began to search outside of sport for what that is. Now, many of us have that realisation at some point in our lives. Perhaps we've excelled in our careers or we desire to excel in our careers. Perhaps we have excelled in education and we want to continue to climb to the top of the ladder. Perhaps we've excelled in our family life and our family is well put together, but we finally reach as high as we can go and we realise, I'm not actually satisfied. The good life is still just around the corner. Now, Australians tend to discover this because we are very materialistic. We are very materialistic. We think the good life is made up of the castle, essentially. Having our good home, a good superannuation, a good family, and all the external signs of success. But when those things don't satisfy, we look deeper. We realise that something else is missing outside of what we have already. What is this outward search pointing us to? Well, our text tells us that it's actually the inner life is where we find ourselves to be satisfied. Now, this is logically true. This is logically true for those that would think about it. Because if all the outside is good, but the the internal life is in turmoil, then clearly the outward life cannot give you the good life. Material success cannot give you the good life, so why keep searching there? And much of New Age religion, in fact, pretty much all religion, tells us you must go inward to find this good life. The New Age tells us much about this, and many Australians have turned to the New Age to try and find this good life. Our text tells us what kind of life this is. It says, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Wouldn't that be incredible to be someone who is so secure internally that they can face any circumstance on the outside? Even, verse 9, when you are given evil. It says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That is an incredibly secure person who has achieved the good life internally if they can even receive evil and return a blessing. This person described here has achieved the good life. So there is an out, there's a search for it, but as some of us have discovered, we must find it internally to, real, to realise what it is to have the good life. What is the requirement for the good life? Verses 10 and 11 explain. It says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I want you, want you to notice the wholeness that it is describing a person who will have the good life. Their tongue, their lips, their, their way, they turn. What they're seeking, everything about the person, even their purpose in life, their goals, everything they're about is righteous, is good. They're a person of integrity from what they say to what they do to what they think. In every aspect a person of integrity. This is a person who receives the good life. Now this is very important and it's, it's a point to stop, to pause, to consider. A bit like the masseuse, if you've ever got a massage before and they find that knot, that pressure point that you know needs work and they focus there for a little bit and you know that that is relieving the pressure in your life. We need to focus on this point for a minute, because many of us in the room claim Christ. We claim that, yes, we know that the true good life is found internally. It's found through faith in God. It's found through a life of integrity. And yet we are outwardly pursuing things that do not amount to a good life. We have bought in to the lie of the world that money makes you happy. Have we not? It, it, isn't that the catch cry of the world, that money makes you happy, that influence will make you happy. I've heard it said that being rich won't make you happy, but it'll make you more comfortable. And perhaps that's true. But for those of us who have reached the pinnacle, we've actually eclipsed many others in life, they will tell us, in fact, almost every lottery winner says after five years they wish they'd never got the money. Because it ruined them. They got everything they ever wanted. They were the one in a million, the one in a billion. They got everything they ever wanted and it was a disaster. Shouldn't we look forward with foresight and look at our future ends if we're just trying to get that material life that everyone else is looking for, the great career, the perfect family, the good superannuation, the security of a stable income and a stable life, shouldn't we look down the track and realise that those that have those things are not satisfied and wonder why are we still searching there? The search for the good life must go beneath the surface internally. So where does the good life come from? 
Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Where does the good life come from? It's a gift from God. He gives it. He gives it in the inward person to those who are righteous and to those who are evil, to those who turn themselves away from God. That's the best definition of evil, by the way, those who turn away from God. To those who are evil, God turns his face away from them. You may have everything good on the outside. You might have the Australian dream on the outside, but when it really comes down to it, you are never satisfied and your internal life is always searching for what's missing, never there. This good life is a gift from God and it is to be experienced. Experienced through knowing that the ears of God are open to their prayer. Imagine that. Imagine knowing that God hears your prayers. Like, not just hoping, but knowing. Believing wholeheartedly that you know God and that he knows you. This doesn't sound like New Age religion. This doesn't sound like religion which says you do good things so that God will accept you. It sounds like something different. It doesn't sound like there's a force out there that if we live a good life, perhaps that force will accept us for the afterlife. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like a personal relationship where they know this God knows you and you know this God personally. So much so you know they hear your prayers. You know that their eye is upon you. This is different. This is not the outward life, this is the inward life, but this is not religion, this is not new age, this is not spiritualism, this is different. It comes from God himself. The good life must enter through our hearts from God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, famous German theologian, pastor, and a conspirator to kill Hitler during World War II, who was executed uh, just prior to uh, Berlin, Berlin being liberated from the Nazis. So, uh, he began his uh, teaching career uh, in the 1920s in Germany. And one of the big questions going on in Germany at the time was, why do we need God? We can get everything we want without God. And Dietrich thought about that question in his first lectures, and he responded, the question is wrong. It is, in fact, God who puts you to the question. Why do we go on searching for the good life and are never satisfied by the material world but never turn to the immaterial world? We never turn to God for help. So what's the big thing that we need to know? Like the hedgehog, it is that God is the good life. The inward reality of the good life is that you must find God to get it. So there's an outward search, but an inward reality, firstly. And secondly, we need to look at, well, who is this giver of the good life? The stakes are high. The promises are great. God offers so much to those who would believe in him. 
Psalm 34 is a meditation on the goodness of God. That is what Peter is doing as he's writing this letter. He's meditating on the goodness of God in Psalm 34, despite difficult circumstances. And his eyes are lifted. They're raised to how good God is. But you might say to me, you might say, well, actually, lots of religions promise the good life. The secular, the secular Australian way offers the good life if you'll buy into it. You know, many people believe that all belief systems will give you the good life. They're all different roads to the central location of heaven. You just need to pick one. And it's okay for you, but it's not okay for me. You know, you do what you like. You let love be love. You do what you like in your life, and if you don't harm anyone, you will get to that glorious place wherever that may be. And this idea that many roads lead to heaven uh, is often explained with this parable of the three blind men and the elephant. You might have heard of it before. This is an Indian elephant, and supposedly there were three blind men that walked up to this elephant to inspect what it was. And uh, one of the blind men, they felt the trunk and they decided that the elephant, after feeling the trunk, was long and flexible. All elephants, the first blind man declared, are long and flexible. Well, the second blind man went up to the side of the elephant and sort of patted it down and said, no, elephants are hard and broad. All elephants are hard and broad. And the third blind man went up to the elephant and sort of, patted its tail and it was soft and fluffy and it said no all elephants the third blind man said all elephants are soft and fluffy and the narrator then says can't you see all religions are looking at the same thing they've just got their hands on a different part but a wise person uh, once said that Les his name is Leslie Newbigin once said aha uh -huh. But this story is told from the eyes of a narrator who is not blind but can see. And the narrator is looking upon all of religions saying, can't you see? They all lead to this, they're all looking at the same elephant, claiming, and the narrator is claiming that they alone have the truth, that they alone can see amongst a world that is blind. Can't you see the arrogance in that? Saying that all paths lead to heaven is an extremely arrogant perspective because you are claiming to be the only one that can truly see the path and you forget that all of these different paths cannot be reconciled to one another. So the question we must ask is not whether they all lead to the same place but rather what are the merits themselves? What is the distinction that we must see? And for Christianity, I want to point out to you, even if you're sceptical of it, and you are very welcome to be here and to be sceptical of Christianity, this is the place to ask the questions in your heart and hopefully have them answered by Christians who are living this life out, who are practicing it. What sort of God is this? Who claims to be distinct from all others? Is he actually different in every way, as I've already said? So what sort of God gives us the good life? Let's have a look at verse 18. 
it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Some of us don't realise how groundbreaking this is. But to say that God himself would step down off his throne, step into humanity. I mean, that's the Christian story, isn't it? We're about to celebrate it at Christmas time. God became a man. He entered our place of living, became one of us. Not only did he do that, but he gave his perfect life in place of ours. This is where we get the idea of substitutionary atonement. That is, God took the penalty for sin instead of us. If we say to God, I will have the good life on my own, and yet the reality is we'll never be satisfied, that is the state we enter eternity in, separated from God. And Jesus willingly came, the Son of God willingly came to step into that place, a place of separation from God, on the cross and to take its full consequence upon himself. That is the kind of God that Christianity has. No other religion has it. What other religion says that God has come to die for you, to give his own life, to give up his strength, to give up his wealth, to give up his power and lay it all down so that you might become part of his family, so that your eternal life would be through his death through his work on the cross and not through your living the good life. That is incredible. It tells us that it is completely of grace that God would do this for us. So who is this giver of the good life? He is the God that gave his life for us and in our place. Our text also tells us that this God is abundantly patient We see in verse 20, he's abundantly patient and we get an example of what that is. God patiently waited in the days of Noah. This is taking us back into the early parts of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. In the days of Noah, we're told that everyone was doing whatever they wanted. They'd given themselves completely to the pursuit of pleasure. They'd given themselves completely to the pursuit of of the good life apart from God. Hedonism, pleasure, to live a good life and have long days and to love it, they'd given themselves fully to that and it was completely destructive and God said, I've got to put a stop to this or they will destroy everything. And so he sent a great flood. So God was patient until he said enough. He was patient in giving them a witness. Right? Noah and his family, that they'll build this giant boat to be saved in. As, and as the waters of God's judgment came, people saw an opportunity to get out and they rejected it. God was patient up until the point that his justice would come. It tells us here that Jesus went into the place where the spirits were put in prison. These people who were separated from God, Jesus went to them and he proclaimed to them. This is a very complex part of Scripture, but I want to tell you 
But I believe the proclamation, the proclamation that Jesus gave was a proclamation that justice has been done. A proclamation that justice has been done. Think about, about it like this. If you are a criminal and uh, you are, you're put into remand, into the remand centre before you are tried and your verdict is given by the judge. It's as if these people of old had been in an, an internal place, a spiritual place of remand until they were waiting for the final declaration that justice would be done, that God is completely just. And now the verdict has come. God has come to deal justice entirely. Now, a lot of people have trouble with the justice of God because they say, well, how can you know those who don't believe in him receive hell and those who do believe in him just get off scot-free? How does that work? You know, how, how can all of these people claim that their God is just and yet they don't receive any punishment? And yet they forget that Christ himself bore our sins on the cross. Jesus took hell on the cross for every believer so that we wouldn't have to have it. That's the point here. And so Jesus is proclaiming in every part of the universe, even in hell, that justice has been done. That it is finished. Their verdict is complete now. God is just in every way. Now, what does this mean for us? This complex bit of text. It's almost like a peek behind the curtain of a spiritual reality that we hardly understand. But there's much that we can learn from it. Firstly, this tells us not to ignore the spiritual reality. You can't just keep going on and on and on for your whole life and expect God's patience to endure forever because God says enough. You can't continue ignoring him because he has placed a finish on human lives called death. He will not permit evil to go on forever and so we must heed his warning. The second thing it tells us is that God is committed entirely to justice. That means that every wrong will be accounted for and set right. The wrongs that Christians do have been set upon the broad shoulders of Jesus on the cross and paid for in full. The wrong that others do, we paid out in full and eternally. Not too much, nor too little, but just right. On earth and even in hell, even to the furthest reaches of the universe, even to the furthest spiritual realities, God will be just and he will not fail. It goes on to connect this idea of salvation through judgment to baptism. The idea of baptism, of course, is that Christians who believe in Jesus would then go through an immersion in water and come out again as an outward sign that they've become a Christian on the inside, that they've believed in God, that their sins have been washed away. 
This is a great promise, of course, that God has already paid out the work of judgment for us. And so just like the Noah's Ark came out and survived through the, uh, the waters of judgment, so too, as we pass through the waters and come out, we realize Jesus has taken that judgment for us and that we are set free from and given eternal life. We're given a clean conscience before God. Not for the removal of dirt, we're not just ordinary washing, it's a spiritual cleansing. We don't just clean the slate, but we throw the slate away. And whoever believes in God are his for all eternity. This text, this text also tells us a bit more about this God. It says that he's totally committed to justice. It says that he is committed to grace, to doing what we could not do for us and in our place. But it also tells us that he is committed to his glory being proclaimed in all the universe. Listen to this, verse 22, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There is no place in the universe that will not receive the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to this in Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, listen to this very carefully, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one throughout history, from the beginning to the end, throughout the whole universe that will not hear of the glory and the victory of Jesus no matter what side they're on. It will be proclaimed to all and so we can have great confidence as we hear this that Jesus will do good to his people because he is absolutely just and he's committed himself even to death and death on a cross and now to glory that everyone would hear even in the depths of hell that he is just. So let me tell you, is there another religion like this? Let me ask you, is there another religion like this? It, it is incomparable. There is one Christ. There is one God who would lay down his life for his people, but take it back up again in great glory. There is no belief system that has the strong, the strongest one lay down his life for the weak in order to lift them up in his own grace. So we've seen there is an outward search but an inward reality to find this good life. There's one thing we need to know and the good life is found in relationship to God. We've looked at the giver of the good life who he is, what he's done, his commitment to justice, his commitment to the proclamation in all places for all eternity that he is God and that there is no other and it is incomparable. Though we might try and compare it, we will look upon Christianity and it will be like the elephant was never there because we will behold the glory of God. 
So this good life, the one big thing we need to know is that we enter into it through faith in God and it comes in relationship to him. I want to leave us this morning with three principles for experiencing the good life. Three principles for experiencing the good life. You know, uh, most of you would have experienced the recent storm uh, that we had about a week ago, and we feel like it sort of was coming back a week later yesterday, didn't we? But there was this ironic situation that was pointed out to me. On the one hand, many of us were without power on the ground, and yet in heaven there was an enormous amount of power because of the lightning. Was there not? There was power in heaven and there was an utter abundance of it. People were saying these are the most lightning strikes they've ever seen. That we, record, we could record how many lightning strikes there are now. So there's power in heaven and yet on earth we have no power. It is a great irony because we know where the power is and yet we can't access it. If only we had a lightning rod, something that would draw the power of heaven to earth and give us what we need. Jesus came to connect the power of heaven to earth. He is our access to all that heaven has to offer. He's our access to the good life, the internal good life, that means no matter what life throws at us, we can be confident in him. So the first principle I want to give to you is that experience, the experience of Christ leads to obedience to Christ. And obedience to Christ leads to the experience of Christ. Let me say that again. The experience of Christ leads to obedience to Christ. And obedience to Christ leads to an experience of Christ. Earlier I mentioned that Peter has been meditating on Psalm 34. In fact, he quotes it regularly throughout this letter that he's writing to churches, to Christians. So get this, he's meditating on God's word. He's experiencing something personally of the goodness of God and then he is passing on that experience to others and saying, live for God, have a humble mind, have a tender heart, have brotherly love, have sympathy, have unity of mind, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. How, is he, how does he have the gall to say something like this to people who will have a hard life? Because he himself is experiencing God. And that is, what is that doing? It's leading to obedience. It's leading to faithfulness. And as people walk in that faithfulness with God, God promises that he will reveal himself to them. John 14, 21 puts it this way. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice the connection here. You have to... To be obedient to God, you must experience God. And yet as you're obedient to God, what does he do? Jesus says he manifests himself to you. He shows himself to be real to you. 
He changes your life. Because the more you walk in his truth, the more he shows you who he is. There's this beautiful momentum that the Christian life can pick up when we're walking in God's truth humbly and we are getting to know this beautiful God more and more. So just like our friend Peter is meditating on God's word and his truth, as we do that, we begin to experience God more. Our friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer got to about the age of 25. He'd actually, as a young man at 21, he'd graduated with a PhD from one of the best universities in Europe. Uh, He was an an outstanding scholar, a a theologian, you know, with few on his level in, at his time. And yet he says at 25, this is what he says, I use the Bible and its doctrines for myself. But when I discovered that the Bible is God's word, he says at 25, I became a Christian. He's saying he knew the right stuff. He read the right stuff. He even taught the right stuff at the highest academic levels. And yet he didn't take it that God was speaking to him through the word until suddenly it hit him. And suddenly he realised that that's when you become a Christian. Isn't that interesting? Gee, living the good life is not just knowing more. It's not just doing better things. It's knowing God. And you only begin to know God when his word gets into your heart. How did this change for him? Well, Bonhoeffer was a funny guy. He used to go to churches, the more ornate churches, just for the art. He went there for the oratory. He went there just to listen to something interesting, to sing or to be part of the culture or community. And so he'd sort of float around different churches, getting a different experience every time. He saw things that appealed to him, but on the inside, he didn't really know God himself. But it says when he got to know God, when he discovered that God is in the Bible, that this God spoken of is real and speaking to him, when he met Christ he said he became much more serious about the religion. It says that he began to actually become much more serious about his church attendance. It says that he became radically committed to the cause of Christ when the Bible became real to him because he realised that God was speaking. His life was changed when his one big thing became Jesus. So the first principle is that the experience of Christ leads to obedience to Christ, and obedience to Christ leads to the experience of Christ. Second principle is this. The more connected you are to God, the more prepared you will be to share him with others. The more connected, principle two, the more connected you are to Christ, the more prepared you will be to share him with others. Many Christians fear telling others about God. Now, you might not get that promotion at work. Your friends might exclude you. You might be uncool in various forms. You know, maybe you've told them before and you've been shut down. Many of us fear 
telling others, or we just don't even know what to say. What do we say when people, you know, come back at us? I was, um, went for a, a run the other day, and I, I ran through some of the uh, most heavily um, affected areas uh, in Blackwood that were affected by the storm that rolled through. And there was one street in particular uh, this was several days after the storm, where it still had trees. It was like devastation. There were trees were down everywhere. Power lines were still down. There were crews working round the clock with large machinery to clean up the mess. And I just thought, wow, this is worse than I thought. I could see the devastation, but I only realised what it was like when I came to see it personally. I heard about it on the news. I read, you know, read the papers watched the television broadcast, but when I went to see it personally, I realised how deep the devastation was. You'll find often that um, our heads of state will come out and visit uh, where these places that have been affected by floods and fires and storms and whatever to get a personal view of what's going on. Why do they do that? Well, at best, they do that because... Once they see it personally, they can work out how to respond appropriately. They see what the devastation is really like. And we have a God who stepped into humanity and was tempted in every way yet without sin. He saw every part of the devastation of sin, of evil in this world, but he had the power to respond appropriately. I just ran around this area just marvelling at the destruction, but I had nothing, I could do nothing to fix it. And yet, when heaven came to earth in Jesus Christ, he came with the power to fix it and he did it personally. You know, the more we understand that what, what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will be able to share freely from our own personal experience. That's the secret to it. It talks about in our text here. It says, verse 15, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Point being, how can you be prepared to share about the faith that you have in Jesus? By having a close relationship with him so that you share out of your personal experience. How else would it work? You can't share about someone you don't know. If you're a Christian here and you desire to share the hope that you have with others but you find it really hard, the key, the answer is to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just to share out of what you know of him personally because that, more than anything else, will touch the lives of others because you really believe it yourself. So the more connected you are to Christ the more prepared you will be to share him. Third and final principle. Confidence in prayer comes from assurance of salvation. Confidence in prayer comes from assurance of salvation. This is when you know that his ears are open to your prayer. We see in verse 12. In 1963, there were over 600 franchises of Kentucky Fried Chicken around the world. And our friend Colonel Sanders was enamoured by his great success. And yet 
he still felt troubled in his soul. This is what he says. You can join the church. You can serve on committees. You can be baptized and receive communion. You can become the superintendent of the Sunday school and not be saved. I know it happened in my life. There I was. I didn't have enough spiritual power in my life to keep me from cussing. Interestingly, Sanders had a real reputation for swearing. Even though he was a professing Christian, even though he did all the right things, even though he taught in Sunday school. So he wasn't just a student, he was a teacher. And yet he didn't know God. And the evidence that he didn't know God was that he couldn't live a life of integrity that said here. He couldn't do it. He didn't have the spiritual power within him to do it. So in 1965, he was asked to see a visiting evangelist by a stranger. He came and asked the pastor if he could be assured that he would go to heaven, that he could be delivered of his habit of cursing. And the pastor said to him, yes, Jesus can do that. Colonel Sanders said afterwards, I know there is an experience of salvation. It is my personal experience today. I know I am right with God. I know my sins are pardoned. Sanders was experiencing the good life through faith in God. Because he had everything, right? He had the external appearance of the good life. 600 stores, wealthy, renowned. And yet it wasn't enough. It didn't give him spiritual power to change something in his life. And what did it reveal? He didn't actually know Jesus. He looks like he did, but inside he didn't. This is what I'm talking about. Some of you look like you know Jesus, but you don't. He hasn't really come in. And the way that you know is that you know that you're righteous in heaven. What did Sanders want? Assurance of salvation. He wanted to know, verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are on him. How could he be righteous when he was an unrighteous man on the inside? Only if, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Only if he has Christ. And what Christ has done for him, could he be right before God? Could he have heaven's ear open to his prayers? And this is true for us. This is a point for you now to consider your own life. Go beyond the external appearances of the good life. Let's go down to the internal, the integrity, who you are when no one else is looking. And ask, is Christ there? Are you assured that you are his, that heaven's ear is open to your prayer? Do you know him? Is your faith in him? If it is, heaven is open. If Christ is yours, if this is true for you personally, not by anything that you bring to the table, but entirely by what Jesus has done, then that is enough. It is paid. It is finished. The soul is his and he is yours. Don't leave today, even this moment, without bringing your soul to God 
and asking Christ in. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we have heard many things about your great justice, your great power, your great commitment toward your people, and we ask that today that you would bring it to bear on us. Show us your mercy and great love. Reveal yourself, we pray in Jesus' name.